Take your Bibles this morning and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 24, the very last chapter in the book of 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 24. And for the few minutes remaining to us this morning, we'll talk a little bit about David and the census. Let's start reading in verse number one. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and count the people, that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are. And may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to count the people of Israel. And they crossed over the Jordan and camped in Aror, on the right side of the town, which is in the midst of the ravine of Gad and toward Jazer. Then they came to Gilead into the land of Tatim Hadshi, and they came to Dan Jaan and around to Sidon. And they came to the stronghold of Tyre and to all the cities of the Hivites and the Canaanites. Then they went out to south Judah as far as Beersheba. So when they had gone through all the land, they came to Jerusalem at the end of nine months and twenty days. Then Joab gave the sum of the number of the people to the king. And there were in Israel eight hundred thousand valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were five hundred thousand men. And David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. So David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Now when David arose in the morning, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer, saying, Go and tell David, thus says the Lord, I offer you three things. Choose one of them for yourself, that I may do it to you. So Gad came to David and told him, and he said to him, Shall seven years of famine come to you in your land? Or shall you flee three months before your enemies while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days plague in your land? Now consider and see what answer I should take back to him who sent me. And David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Please let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercies are great, but do not let me fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time. From Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men of the people died. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Araunah the Jebusite. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of around of the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Arana looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Arana went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And then Arana said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord, that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Arana said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Arana has given to the king. And Arana said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Then the king said to Arana, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. 
nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land, and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. Father God, we pray now that you bless as we look at your word. Help, Lord, teach today. Be our teacher. I pray the Holy Spirit would just take control of this whole thing. I pray the Holy Spirit would fill me. May there be nothing in my life, Lord, that uh, hinders my ability to preach today. If there is, I pray forgiveness. And, and may we all have ears to hear today. Holy Spirit, just teach, I pray. And may we learn from this uh, another difficult chapter in the life of David. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are almost now at the very end of our studies in the life of David. We're almost to the end of the story. And let's just review a little bit about what we have learned about David so far. We watched in wonder, did we not, as we saw a young shepherd tending his father's sheep. And uh, we were amazed to see that with the help of God, he was able to defeat a lion and a bear as he did that. We marveled to see that same courage as he stood face to face with the giant Goliath. And we, we wanted to say praise the Lord when we heard him say, uh, you know, I come to you in the name of the Lord our God. The battle is the Lord's and run right at him. We were amazed to see it. We saw David's tenderness and his compassion and his love for Saul and Jonathan. And we felt empathy for him, did we not, as we watched him flee from his now enemy Saul for so much of his life, fleeing from him. And then we rejoiced and cheered as we saw him finally take the throne. And as we saw him unite the tribes of Israel under one kingdom, and as we saw him conquer the unconquerable city of Jerusalem, and we watched in absolute joyous approval as we saw him invite Mephibosheth, lame, impoverished Mephibosheth, the picture of us all, to sit at his table in his banquet hall. And then we watched in stunned silence as he plummeted into sin with Bathsheba. As he fell to depths, we would have never believed in ordering the murder of Uriah. And we learned from the aftermath of that sin, as we read of the death of that child, the rape of Tamar by his own son Amnon, and the murder of Abnon by his other son Absalom, and then the murder of Absalom by his general Joab. Well, there are other stories after that that we could continue to look at, but we're going to fast forward just a little bit. I'd encourage you to read some of those intervening chapters, and you'll see there was a few other interesting characters in there. There's another little bit about Mephibosheth in there that's of interest. Interesting stories there that we'll, we'll leave for your own study. But I want to skip forward to what some would say is the second great fall in the life of David, the story, the matter of the census. <laughs> And as we look at this, I don't, I don't know about you, but as, as I read this through, I've got to imagine that a couple of questions came to your mind. One of those questions no doubt came to your mind when I read the very first verse. The very first verse says, the anger, of the, Lord, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, go number Israel and Judah. And if you're thinking about that, the question has to come to your mind, wait a minute, is that saying that God made David sin? It's an interesting question. Raises all kinds of theological issues, does it not? 
Another question that has to come to mind, and I can't, I can't imagine it doesn't, is, is are all of us right now saying to ourselves, what in the world is so bad about numbering the people? What's wrong with the census? Doesn't seem like there's anything wrong with it. Well, that first question, fortunately, we have a very simple answer for. There is a parallel passage to this in First Chronicles, and you need not turn there, but maybe later today or sometime you might want to look at that on your own. But First Chronicles chapter 21 tells this same story and adds some additional detail for us. First Chronicles 21, verse number 1 starts off, it says, Now Satan stood up against Israel and moved David to number Israel. And so, as is so often seen in the Bible, and it's often our own experience, our adversary, the devil, is the one who's doing the tempting. God allowed it, but Satan was the one who was doing it. My Bible tells me in James chapter 1 and verse number 13 that God does not tempt us with evil. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed, but God does not do it. And so oftentimes, Scripture describes as his doing what he is merely permitting to be done. And so here he permitted Satan to test, to tempt David, but Satan was the active agent. Warren Wiersbe said, here's another example of God permitting Satan to work so that the purposes of the Lord might be fulfilled. And Matthew Henry said that Satan is an enemy, suggested it for a sin, just as he put it into the heart of Judas to betray Christ. So I think we have an answer for that first question. But that second question, what's so bad about the census? That one we have a little more trouble with. The fact is the Bible doesn't tell us really what's so bad about the census. There's no place that you can look here that really explains it. It just describes that it was sin, but it doesn't say why. Theologians have wrestled with this for years, and they've come up with all kinds of different answers. If you're holding a study Bible this morning, you probably could look down at your notes, and you could find some of those answers that are listed there. Um, and some of them probably won't sound very satisfying to you. They all seem to come back to one particular thing, which we'll talk about in a minute. But the fact is we just don't really know why it was sin. But we do know that it was sin. There's no question as we read this that God thought the numbering of his people was sinful. It took David a while here to get his heart and his mind around this from the time that he sent them out until they came back with months, nine months or ten months, something like that. And during all of that time, he finally got his heart and his mind right. And when he did, he realized just how bad this was. Look what he said in verse number 10. It says, David's heart condemned him after he had numbered the people. And so David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. You remember what he said after Nathan the prophet came to him and pointed his finger at him after the matter of Bathsheba had taken place. And he said, you have uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba and you have murdered her husband. What did David say? What was his response? He said, I have sinned. But here he says, I have greatly sinned. David recognized that this was a serious sin. He says, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. Whatever this sin was, <laughs> we're not real sure what it was, but whatever it was, it was serious business. It was serious enough that Joab thought it was sin. Now, I don't know what you think about Joab. I've heard different people preach different ways about Joab. Some people think Joab was a good guy. I personally do not. I think Joab was not a good guy. 
And as a matter of fact, he has a very interesting history. Maybe sometime you might want to study that out. And if you get to the very end of the life of David, you're going to find that after all of this time that Joab has served David, uh, David orders his execution, and he ends up dying as a result of some of the things he's done in the past. So Joab's an interesting person, but you know what right here? He's acting as a friend to David. And he's saying, wait a minute. What are you trying to do? This thing is sin. Interesting reminder to us, isn't it, that (laughs) we need each other. That's another one of those little reminders. Sometimes even the imperfect brothers and sisters that we have around us in Christ are a help to us. David should listen to Joab here. Because whatever this sin was, even Joab, who had no problem with the Uriah affair, had no problem whatsoever with David committing adultery with Bathsheba and then having him uh, set Uriah in the heat of the battle or the heart of the battle. He had no problem with any of that. But he, boy, he thought this was sin. So we don't know why it was sin, but we know it was sin. This numbering of the people was serious business. Well, in this series, what we've been trying to do is to draw some practical lessons out of all these stories in the life of David. So as we look at this chapter, are there any practical lessons, things we might apply to ourselves? And I think there are. I, mean, I want to I share with you four of them this morning that uh, kind of jump out at me as I think about this. And the first one is the danger of pride. The danger of pride. Now, I mentioned a minute ago that uh, we don't really know what this sin was. But if you do study it out, you'll find that the one thing that bubbles to the top in most commentators' view, and in my view as well, and I haven't asked Brother Phil this, but he probably would agree. Just nod your head and say, yeah, you agree. Uh, (laughs) The sin of David was pride. That seems to be the most likely answer to what it was. You'll see some others, but that seems to be the most likely. One person said the act of numbering the people was not in itself sinful, for Moses did it by the express authority of God. But David acted not only independently of such order of sanction, but from motives unworthy of the delegated king of Israel, from pride and vain glory, from self-confidence and distrust of God, and above all, from ambitious designs of conquest. Pride. Perhaps David had lost sight of where his strength came from. Perhaps he had begun to look around about all of the massive armies that were now surrounding him and protecting him and and there by his side. Perhaps he had begun to look at them and think with pride about them. Maybe he had become like another king. Remember Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar, who is yet future at this point, but we read about him in Daniel, Daniel chapter 4. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar one time walked out and looked across all of Babylon and he said, look at this. This is mine. I did this. This is my great city of Babylon, which by my might and my power. And you know what God did? He smacked him right down. Snatched him bald-headed just about. Kicked the kingdom right out from under him because he was proving to him that uh, he was not the one who had, maybe that's what David had happened. David had come to the place where he had begun to trust more in his armies and what he had done than in the fact that God had done it in the first place. It's a far cry, is it not, from the attitude that he had when he stood face to face across that field from the giant. And he said, I come to you in the name of the Lord our God. I come to you with, he says, God doesn't save with sword or spear. He says, God, the battle is the Lord's. I mean, this is a far different attitude that we see here. Pride. How David has fallen from that wonderful trust in God's strength to what appears to be a sinful trust here in the armies of men massed about him. 
pride. Perhaps we can understand why that would be such a terrible sin if we, if we go to Proverbs chapter 6, and I'll read it. You don't have to turn there, but you might want to just jot down this and look at it on your own sometime. But Proverbs chapter 6 tells us seven things God hates. You ever read that passage? It says, these six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him, a proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that are swift in running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. Pride is the very top of that list. The thing that God hates more than anything is pride. Maybe an indication of just how serious this sin was is seen in the level of God's wrath that was poured out here in judgment of it. Did you notice God gave him three choices? That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Three different choices as to what judgment would be poured out upon him. And if you think about it, all three of those choices seem to be designed to humble David and to remind him that all these things you're trusting in, I can take them just like that. Think about those three. Whether it was famine or military defeat or disease, David would be reminded that all of those armies, all of those people could be gone in a minute because God was the one ultimately in control. And 70,000 people died. Matthew Henry said David's adultery was punished for the present with the death of one infant. His pride with the death of all those thousands. So much does God hate pride. And so perhaps in the destruction of so many, God was reminding David of who is ultimately in control. Perhaps he was reminding David, as he had said in Jeremiah, Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. Because that seems to describe David here, doesn't it? So what's the lesson for us? What's, what's, what's the lesson for us? And it, it's clear, is it not? We need to be aware of the danger of pride. We need to guard against pride. We have our list of sins, don't we? We have our lists that we think are the worst possible sins. And if we're honest with ourselves, how many of us put pride at the very top of that list? But look, it is. It's at the very top of the list. We don't lie or cheat or steal. At least we're not supposed to. We obey the Ten Commandments. We know them all, and we know that as believers, there's not a single one of them we can ignore. We know those things. To ignore those would be, would be sin. We say like the fella said that we don't drink or smoke or chew or run with the girls who do. We think all those things are important. Though, do we understand the danger of pride? This passage sure tells it to me. It's the sin that brought down Lucifer himself. And here we see it's a sin that brought King David to his knees as well. So the first lesson I would suggest is the danger of pride. The second is the overconfidence of age. The overconfidence of age. David's not a young man here anymore. As a matter of fact, David's getting up in years. As a matter of fact, David is probably just downright old right here. If you go to the very next chapter, the very first verse of the very next chapter, in 1 Kings chapter 1 and verse number 1, it says, Now King David was old, advanced in years. It's pretty clear. And one would hope, wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't you hope that, that David, now that he's gotten older, would be growing and, and would be handling temptation more in his life? And, uh, with each passing year, his faith would be stronger. One would expect, I would think, that 
fighting against sin would become less of a problem as he got older, going from youth through middle age to the winter years where he is now. But you know, I think David's a reminder that we can never let down our guard. Never. The devil might not be so easily able now to tempt David with sensual sins as he did in his youth. But the devil has a big tool. And the devil never runs out of tools to use against us. And here, he seemed to have an endless supply to use against David. I feel it in myself as I grow older. Probably some of you do too. There were things that were a concern to me in my youth, which are not as much of a concern to me now as I get older. Still there, can't be stupid. Still there, have to be on your guard. But not nearly the problem that they once were. But you know, there's other things. Let's call them old age temptations that are there. Do you feel it? Some of you who are old like me. I think pride just might be one of them. An old age temptation. Look at what I have done with my life. I have earned this place in my life. How many of us reach a certain age? And whether we say it out loud, it's what's in our heart. I have earned this. I deserve this. I wonder, my older brothers and sisters, how many of you would say today that you struggle with a Bathsheba-like temptation? And my, aunt, my guess is probably very few. But how many of you struggle with pride? How many of you struggle with some of these old age sins, some of these spiritual temptations? You know, one of my favorite characters in the Bible is Hezekiah. You ever read about King Hezekiah? The Bible says Hezekiah was a wonderful king. The Bible heaps superlatives on Hezekiah. It says he was one of the best kings that's ever lived. And then you get down to the end of, the, of his life, and you know what? Hezekiah just got stupid in his old age. And he died stupid. There's another king. I believe his name was Uzziah. I always get him confused with somebody else, but I think it was Uzziah. Uzziah was another one that the Bible says great things about. Wonderful guy. And then it gets down to the end of his life. The Bible says he was diseased in his feet. And he sought not unto the Lord, but unto the physicians. And then he just, he just turned against God. He just, he just got stupid. And, and, and we see these examples in the Bible of how people can live so close to God and do so well for so long. And then they get to their old age. Something happens. Perhaps that's what happened to David here. You know, I don't care whether you're 8 or 80. I don't care whether you're 10 or 100. You're not there yet. You're not done. You have not arrived. And if you are a Christian, the devil still wants to take you out of the fight. Doesn't matter your age. He doesn't want these, we watch these precious young folks up here this morning, he does not want them to see you sitting there as a mature Christian when they see you. He wants them to see you as someone who's <laughs> proud and self-centered and growing more so the older you get. He doesn't want them to have role models. He wants to mold them into that same proud, self-centered person. I was thrilled this past week to watch in VBS as we saw so many of our older Christians serving the younger. Because listen to me, there will be no next generation of Christians. 
if this generation doesn't live it before them. Hmm. So I believe, brothers and sisters, we must not let down our guard. We need to be like Winston Churchill. Remember what Winston Churchill said? He said, never give in, never give in, never, 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 in nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Warren Wiersbe said, we never outgrow temptation. We must not let down our guard. We must be like the man who said, I hate the devil. I will fight the devil until I die. He said, I will punch him as long as I can punch. And when I can no longer punch, I will kick him until I can no longer kick. And when I can no longer kick, I will gnaw on him with my teeth. And when my teeth are worn away, I'll gum him until I die. That's the way we need to be. Don't surrender to the sins of old age. Because the church needs its older members. Precious. Vital. Critical. Indispensable to the cause of Christ. Third thing I see. I'm out of time, so i got to hurry. Third thing I see is the simplicity of the solution. The simplicity of the solution. If you find yourself in David's case, you find yourself struggling with something like this. The solution is the same as it's always been. When Nathan the prophet so pointedly came to David the first time, when he came to him when he sinned with Bathsheba and Uriah, David's response was, I have sinned against the Lord. David's response was conviction and confession and repentance. And then he wrote Psalm 51, and we see it more, more portrayed even there. And here in this sin that took place in his winter years, the response was the same. The solution was the same. Confession. Conviction. Confession. And repentance. Verse number 10, David said, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. When's the last time you said those words? When's the last time you said those words to the Lord? You know, we need to keep short accounts. David waited months before he said this, but we ought to be saying it every day. Every day we ought to be convicted of our, of our sin. Every day we ought to be confessing and repenting as needed. Every day. Sometimes we need to do it so others can see. When's the last time you let down your guard and knelt in front of others and admitted to them that you still, still battle? How much Christians need to see that? Maybe you're too proud for that. Maybe too proud to admit, as Annie Hawks wrote in 1872, I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. Every hour I need thee. Well, number four, the last one. The last lesson I see is the sacrifice in sacrifice. On the one hand, the solution was simple, right? On the one hand, the solution was to confess and to, and to repent of his sin. And uh, he was forgiven. And, and, and we read that and we're reminded that the same thing is true of us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. First John 1 John 1.9. So on one hand, it was simple. But on the other hand, it was not so simple, was it? You know, the fact is there was a cost. There was a price to be paid for sin. It had been true with the sin involving Bathsheba that Nathan had said, the baby that is born of you shall die. And it did. And here David's decision to choose the judgment of pestilence resulted in 70,000 deaths. Sin costs. And by the way, if you're still wondering about how bad this particular sin was, 
I would suggest to you that nobody in this room would have the slightest problem saying amen uh, to the fact that that sin that David committed with Bathsheba and, and the murder of her husband Uriah, that was bad sin. Almost all of us would say amen to that. That's, that was bad. That was bad. I see some head shaking. That was bad. But if we look at this right here, you know what God seems to be saying to us? The sin, whatever it was, when we think it's pride, whatever it was, was 70,000 times worse. One child died as a result of Bathsheba and David. 70,000 died here. Sin costs. Sin costs. But there's something else that needs to get our attention here, and I, it could be a whole other message, but I'll just mention it and we'll be done. It's, uh, it's kind of, the, I think, the text of this whole passage, and the key thought of this whole passage is verse 24. The king said to Arana, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. Not only does sin cost, worship costs. My brother Peter said something like this this morning. Sacrifice. David knew that worship involved sacrifice. David knew that there would be a cost. By its very definition, the word sacrifice includes cost. How could he sacrifice to the Lord what cost him nothing? That would be a denial of the very meaning of the word. Sacrifice. Warren Wiersbe said true confession is a costly And John MacArthur said, sacrifice is an essential part of the worship of God. Some of us are only willing to worship God or serve God or follow Christ if it costs us nothing. If it takes nothing away from our trivial pursuits of pleasure. If it in no way impacts our career or our family or our friends. If there's no loss of prestige within our circles. Okay, we're willing to follow that was not David. He knew there is sacrifice needed. I attended college at Kent State for a while when I first graduated out of, out of high school. And while I was there for some reason, I don't even remember why, I took voice lessons. It had nothing to do with my major. I can't remember why I did it, but I took individual instruction on voice lessons. And I remember uh, this particular vocal coach or whatever they called him uh, was, uh, was talking to me one day and asking me, why do you want why do you want to learn to sing better? And I said, well, you know, I attend a church and I, I'm a Christian and I want to be able to, you know, I want to be able to sing better in church. And so from then on, he used hymns all the time. I don't believe he was a saved man, but he always used hymns from that point on. And there's one hymn that always sticks in my mind. I, I still, to this day, this, is a, this was a thousand years ago, I still to this day remember this hymn. It pays to serve Jesus. It pays every day. It pays every step of the way. And you know that's true, is it not? Would any of us deny that? It pays to serve Jesus. But the thing that I think I see here in this passage is it also costs. It also costs. If you're only willing to serve God, if it costs you nothing, then you might as well get off the train right now. Because that's not serving God. It costs. It costs. You know, there was a person in the Bible who had a problem with sacrifice, who thought that serving God ought not cost anything. You know what his name was? Judas. Judas said one time, what is the purpose of this waste? Because somebody else had dared to sacrifice for the Lord Jesus Christ. We read about Abraham during our communion services this morning, though, and he's the opposite example. He recognized the relationship between sacrifice and worship. He didn't even withhold his his own son. Worship costs. The king said, no, but I will surely buy it for a price, nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing.
So what lessons can we learn? And I kind of flew through the last ones there, but what lessons can we learn from this somewhat strange episode in David's winter years? Well, I think we learn the danger of pride, the overconfidence of age, the simplicity of the solution, and the sacrifice in sacrifice. Do any of those hit home? Do any of those speak to your heart this morning? If so, you need to make it right. And you need to make it right today. Don't wait another minute. Don't be like David and wait months. And for goodness sake, don't let pride be the thing that stops you from making it right. No matter how much pride you need to swallow, no matter how much it might seem to cost, you need to make it right. You know, according to tradition, this threshing floor that took place right here uh, was Mount Moriah, was on Mount Moriah. As we read earlier, that was the very place where Abraham offered his son and where that ram was substituted for him. It is on this very same spot that in just a few short years, Solomon is going to build the great temple. And in the, in the shadow of that very hill, right there, is also where the Lord Jesus Christ's blood red, ran red for you and for me. On Mount Moriah, David came face to face with the seriousness of his sin and his pride because he saw 70,000 people die because of it. You know, if you and I could go there, if we could go back in our mind's eye to when Christ hung on that cross, his brow pierced with thorns, his hands and his feet stabbed with nails, if we could hear him say, Father, forgive them. If we could hear him say, it is finished, paid in full. If we could get a glimpse of the cost, the price that was paid for your sin and mine, the price you could have, I could have forgiveness if we could see that. Nothing would keep us from crying out in repentance, just as David did, to the one who loved us so much. I pray we'd see it today.